you have your Bibles, please, turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Um, we looked at the first half of John chapter 14 last week. We're going to attempt to kind of wrap up John chapter 14 this week. Um, so we're going to kind of go through some of it quickly and then kind of circle back to the main verse that we start with this morning um, at the end to kind of complete this chapter. Again, just for a point of reference, this is part of what we call the upper room discourse. Okay, Jesus has gathered his disciples. We saw in the last few chapters um, where he went and he washed their feet. And what a, a, a symbol of humility and what a, a, uh, an opportunity for these disciples to see this, this genuine love that Christ had for them. Um, in that time when he washes the feet of the disciples, a few things occur. And one of the things that we see beyond just the humility of Christ is he identifies Judas as the one who will betray him. And so we see that take place. Judas, Jesus kind of releases Judas at the very end of that part and says, go do what you're about to do. Um, And then after he leaves, Jesus huddles in with the rest of the guys, the rest of the group there. And we have these few um, intimate moments now that Jesus is going to pour himself into the disciples. And and the idea, understanding for, for us, and we have the ability now, is we have the book, and we can read the entire book. We know everything that is about to happen. We know what will happen. Um, we have to be mindful, though, that the disciples did not. They had no idea. They'd spent the last three and a half years with this man, their rabbi, their teacher, the one that they loved, the one they were willing to give up everything to follow. And suddenly, as they've seen the Pharisees and the religious leaders get more and more angry and upset with Jesus, They've heard the rumors. They've heard all these things. And they know there's a lot of tension. And then Jesus tells them, guys, my time here is almost over. Um, soon I will die. And I'll come back. But, but this, these words, um, although he had said it before, brings out new meaning for the disciples. It, previously when he said it, there was, it, Jesus was in his heyday. Everyone was, was loving Jesus and throwing parades for Jesus and, and, and big crowds are coming to, to support him and rally behind him. And so back then, when they would say it, they had no idea what he was talking about. But now as the tide has turned, they understand that this is real. And so we have these moments now where Jesus is huddling that group together and he's pouring himself into them. And again, I want us to remember, I mean, for us, for me, it would be different. Um, you know, if, if I knew my moments were, were coming to an end, I, the selfish side of me would be more concerned with my final moments and taking care of what I need to get taken care of. But Jesus, although he knows all that's coming, is more concerned with the disciples, more concerned with what will happen to them, more concerned with how they'll respond. And we're going to see that again in this um, chapter here. So, so let's, let's turn our Bibles there, John chapter 14. And we're going to start in verse 15. I'm going to read it. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. So John chapter 14, starting in verse 15, says, If you love me, and this is Jesus speaking, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18 says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. 
In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 22 says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Verse 25 says, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, or what I've told you before takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning asking over the next few moments as we dig into your word that the helper, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit invades this place, fills this room. May he this morning call those who don't know you as their savior to know you. May he work in our hearts and show those who do know you areas that may need to change. May the Holy Spirit convict us and create a new spirit within us. Lord, I pray that as we go into your word that everything that is said, everything that is done, The words that are spoken are truth and reflect only what your word says. Your word is much, much important than anything I could utter. So may we be faithful to your word this morning and may we see the Holy Spirit work in us and through us in a tremendous way. It's in your son's perfect, holy, amazing name we pray. Amen. This morning, when we look at these uh, couple of verses, we're going to try and break this down a little quickly. And like I said, we're going to circle back to the beginning. When we look at verses um, 15 through 17 of John, we see that um, we're not alone. When Jesus left, we realized that he didn't leave us here alone. Um, we have been given an indwelling helper. Initially, in those first verses, um, he's mentioned as the helper, verse 15, or verse, towards the end of verse 16. It says, I will give you a helper. Notice that helper's capitalized. 
It's, a, it's another name given to the Holy Spirit. Later on in the scripture, Jesus is going to say, you're not going to be left as orphans. I'm not going to leave you fatherless without direction. That first verse, though, if you have your Bibles um, and if you have a pen handy, a highlighter, pen, whatever it is, I, I would encourage you, I, I, would, I would plead with you to underline verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The title of the message this morning is, It's Not When, But If. I would circle that word, if. It's a big word. Although only two letters, it carries heavy consequence and heavy rewards. Jesus begins this, again, this, this final few words before they're about to leave on their way towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And he tells them, listen, guys, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The disciples already know that he's, he's made a statement, I'm about to leave. And so now again, once again, he's, he's trying to comfort them. And so he says, um, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. And he'll be with you forever. Guys, those of you who have accepted Christ as your Savior, there's something amazing about that. Um, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. Okay, like, I don't know that we fully understand or appreciate that. Like, this news to the disciples at this time would have been, like, revolutionary. It would have been stunning to these guys. Okay, they knew the Old Testament. Like, these guys had it memorized. They, they, they knew it, it was all here. The thing they knew about the Old Testament was this. The Holy Spirit would come and go. The Holy Spirit, only on a few occasions, would indwell a person permanently. Most of the time it would come in for a season, for a time. It'd be there and then it would leave. We look in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 15. We see as, as there's a description of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit indwell in him from the beginning. Like that's very few times we see that before this. And so Jesus is saying, listen guys, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And he's going to, dwell in you. Right Later on in this, in this um, passage here, um, let's go towards the end of verse 17, or we'll continue here. It says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, they understood the Holy Spirit dwelt among them, but in me, that was different. That was like, wow. I, I've said this before, and I, I wonder, um, all of us probably have like these things that we think about. Like one day when, when I go to heaven, like I want to go find David and ask David, what was it like to go against Goliath, right? Or, or whoever your favorite, Moses, what was it like, like when, when all these Guys were coming after you, and all of a sudden you're there, and you hit the staff and the Red Sea part. Like, what was that like? Anybody? I don't know if you guys have that in your mind. Like, you're going to find that person you've read about, your favorite character in the Bible, and ask them, what was it like to do whatever? Right? Like, here's what I think is going to happen. Like, we're going to get there, and, like, David's going to come run to us saying, man, what was it like to have the Holy Spirit living in you 
Noah run to us and yeah the ark was cool but I didn't have the Holy Spirit in me forever what was it like to have the Holy Spirit like living in you like the Spirit of God living in you what was it like I I feared way too often in my own Christian walk that I forget that the Holy Spirit triune God is living in within me and everyone else who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior he is there living in you what's what's so important about this Holy Spirit like what's what what does the Holy Spirit do we go down here a little bit further and we get an understanding of this in verses uh, 14 through 26 we have this great um, illustration a calling out of the Trinity in the Scriptures, and we see some of the roles that the Holy Spirit does. Look, verse um, four, 24 says this, uh, Whoever does not love me does not keep my commandments. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father. Okay, so we have the Father mentioned here, who sent me. Verse 25 says, These things I have spoken to you, Jesus talking there, I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, okay, underline the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name. So we have in that one sentence there, Trinity, the help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father. Here we go. What will the Holy Spirit do? Underline this. He will teach you all things. It's the first thing the Holy Spirit does for us is he teaches us. As we begin to read our Bibles, it brings out a new life. I don't know if you've had the opportunity of beginning to read your Bible, and all of a sudden, like, it feels like a little light goes off in your head. Like, holy cow, that's exactly what I needed. Or, or I've read this book before, I've read this chapter before, but somehow or another, I, like, miss this. I will never forget. I was teaching a Sunday school class, a young adult class, probably four years ago. And we were doing a study on Abraham. I remember in Bible college studying Abraham and, and um, different books about Abraham. I remember reading about him in Genesis. And, and we were studying this portion, and, and it was when Jesus come, or God comes to, to Abraham, and, and Abraham had done all these things. Like he had moved his family. God told him, I want you to pack up your stuff and move. He moves, and he makes his promise. He says, I'm going to give you a child, offspring. And so Abraham, his wife, they pack the U-Haul up, they leave the family, and they, they go. All these different things that God will ask Abraham to do, he does faithfully. And um, at some point, Genesis chapter 15, like God comes to Abraham. Abraham's asleep in his, in his tent. And um, God says to Abraham, he's like, hey, um, I'm going to give you all this offspring. You'll be a father of all these nations. And Abraham's response this is Chad Clement's version. He goes, God, I'm done. I'm done. I've done, for 20 years, I've done everything you've asked. I mean, I've, I've packed up, I've sold stuff, I've moved, I've done everything you've asked. And the one thing you told me you would give me, not there. 20 years. My wife, 
she's way past the age of being able to have kids. And God tells Moses, or tells Abraham, to step outside. See, because the perspective that Abraham had was within his tent, what he saw. And God tells him to step outside and tells him to look up into the heavens. And it's a signal to tell Abraham, listen, your view, your vision, it's narrow. Like, it's limited. But I'm not. And in this study, I came across what has become my life verse, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Where it says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways. Or that's us. Like, my thoughts aren't as significant as his thoughts, nor my ways his ways. Just like the heavens are higher than the earth, so his thoughts are higher than mine. See, that was something, I'd gone to Bible college, I'd done all sorts of study. I, it had never clicked with me until I started doing that study. And it was like, this light goes off. And I'm like, holy cow. It wasn't new. I mean, it had been in the Bible for thousands of years, right? It was nothing new. But the Holy Spirit in that moment taught me something. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches us. Later on in there, after that we see, um, so underline, he will teach you all things. That's the first thing he does. Second thing he does is, and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit reminds us, again, in your own walk, how many of us have maybe memorized a verse? Maybe we were children, little kids. Mom and dad dragged us to church. We memorize a verse. And then later on in life, something happens. And then all of a sudden, that verse comes back to us. I mean, we may not have read it for 10 years. All of a sudden, it clicks. Oh, wow, I remember. Or, or, or I remember my Sunday school teacher telling me, or my youth pastor telling me this, or my pastor with the receding hairline telling me that. Oh, I, oh, yeah, I remember. Guys, that's the Holy Spirit reminding you things that you read, that you learned previously. And then the next verse that we see, um, verse 27, peace. He brings us peace. Those are the three main jobs the Holy Spirit does for us. He teaches us, he reminds us, and he brings peace. That's pretty big in our lives, isn't it? It's pretty big in the chaos of everything going on around us today. Peace is one of those things that's hard to attain, isn't it? I mean, if we're all being honest, finding true contentment and peace is difficult. We can chase a lot of things. I'm talking to Christians here, those who even believe. Like, it's difficult. Like, there's all, all sorts of questions. Sometimes we have this idea that we become Christians. We ask Christ to become our Savior. Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. And we think it's just one gigantic rose parade. Until we hit that first speed bump. It's difficult. In this passage, we see... This idea of trust, about how we have to trust in him.
There's a difference between trust and confidence, though. Trust is one of those things that we ultimately, we decide. We, we make a choice. We're going we're gonna to trust what Jesus says. We're going to believe his words. We're going to apply them to our lives. We're going to use that as our compass. That's trust. But confidence, does confidence automatically come with trust? Like if we had a tightrope here, and I was going to walk on a tightrope, I can trust that that tightrope will hold my weight. But I'm probably not going to have a whole lot of confidence on that rope, am I? If you've seen my balance, you'll understand that. That closet over there is filled with unicycles. Like, it will support me. Like, I'm pretty sure it will support me. But I don't have a whole lot of confidence riding it. But the more you do this, right, the the more you practice, the more you were to walk on a rope, the more you would practice on a tightrope or whatever, the more confidence you gain. It's the same way with our Christian walk. We'll trust. We say we trust. We sincerely do. But there's still uneasiness that as we go through this journey the helper the Holy Spirit comes and brings peace into our lives towards the end of verse 27 says um, he, he talks about peace I leave with you Jesus is leaving his legacy peace I leave with you my peace I give to you talking to his disciples not as the world gives you I give you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid you heard me say to you I'm going away and I will come to you if you love me you would have rejoiced because I am going to the father for the father is greater than I Again, he's offering up this idea of comfort to these men, people in that room. He's leaving. But he wants them to understand, I'm going to give you sincere, true peace, but not like the world's peace. You know, it's interesting, um, earlier in this passage, um, Judas asked him a question, how is this going to be? How, how are you going to manifest this? How is this going to be? And we see this thing where Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you something that's different than the world. In John's narrative, the, the Gospel of John, we see this, this shift in this term world. The very beginning, when we get the, in John chapter 1, when, when Jesus would use that word, or when John used the, the word world, he's referring to all of humanity. Those who believe and those who don't believe. It's just, he's just lumping them all together, all of humanity. And then all of a sudden we see in John chapter 13 this shift, this change. Where he says, the world, but then he identifies those within the world, his own. So we go from world being everything, every, all of humanity, Second kind of wave transition is, is the world, everybody, but then within that world, there's this um, group of, of my own. 
And then, as we see in John chapter 14, there's this seismic shift to where John separates world from those who follow Jesus. Almost to the point where they're mortal enemies. There's this giant chasm now between the world and those who believe in Christ. I talked a little bit about this last week in our lesson when we talked about um, heaven and how our advertising today and so many different things will talk about how if we buy this product, it will be like heaven on earth. Um, We jokingly talked about hair products for the actresses that get like whatever it is, $10 million per movie, and they're using a brand of something that you can go to Walmart and get. And the reality is they're probably not using that at home, right? I have a hard time believing that like Julia Roberts is running around with sponge stuff in her hair at her home that she's got her husband doing for her. Like I don't think that happens, right? But, but when we watch these commercials, like all of a sudden we think, oh, wow, look at how beautiful she is. And if I can get this, I will be just like her. It will be perfect, it's that trap, right? And all of a sudden, it's, it's like when we, we watch these commercials, and all of a sudden you go to the, the stores, and you see the little sticker on that product saying, just like seen on TV. And all of a sudden you look, and it's like cheap, it's garbage, it's not going to last. And that's kind of the same thing here, where the world offers us peace. But for us to chase after the peace that the world's going to offer it's not going to last. I mean, like, we watched again the commercials, and man, life's hard, life's challenging. Um, and so, if we can just consume enough alcohol, it kind of deadens everything. I mean, it, it makes life good. I mean, if we're going to have fun, we've got to have this in our life, and then, that, then, then we can forget about all of their stuff. It's peaceful. I can attest to this. Uh, That's peaceful for a moment. But that next morning, there's no peace. We we can find our our peace in in a person, a relationship. We watch these commercials on TV now where where we can even go um, on these websites and find that perfect mate. And just so the Christians aren't left behind, there's like a Christian online, like singles, mingles thingamabob. I'm so thankful that um, all that stuff came out before I had to deal with that stuff. But right, but even that stuff, like you can find the perfect mate. Like the absolute worst commercials on TV today is like that for farmers only thing. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? It's awful. Like, so they're making promises to everybody, the Christians, the farmers, and whatever. Like, you can find the perfect mate by logging on to here. But if we're going to try and find contentment, if we're going to try and find peace in a person, it will fail every single time. See, it makes no difference what we search for for peace, if it's not Jesus Christ, it will fail. And the best thing the world can offer is something shiny and something temporary. 
That's it. That's the best it can offer. The Holy Spirit, the helper, though, can bring peace. Jesus' peace. That allows us, when those speed bumps occur, doesn't mean there's no pain. doesn't mean there's no uncertainty. But it does mean there'll be peace. Be something that we can turn to that will help us through the circumstance. That we can rest at night knowing I don't know the reason why. I don't understand why all this is going on. But I know he has a plan. And he's sovereign. He's all-knowing. And he loved me enough to send his only son to die on a cross for my sins. And so although I have no idea what's going on, I can trust in the one who did all that for me. That's the peace that we get. That relationship, the alcohol, or whatever it is, those things, whatever it is we try and find the peace in, it did none of that stuff for us. And so we should expect none of that to return to us. Verse 29, Jesus is speaking and he says, Now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I'll be transparent with you guys. As a pastor, um, there's a few things that scare me. Um, our, Our method of teaching is to go verse by verse through the book of the Bible, through a chapter or book of the Bible. There's one particular book of the Bible that does scare me when it comes to the time where I'm about to teach and preach it. It's Revelation. I remember when I taught Sunday school class, when we would finish a study, I would ask for some suggestions and like, fail not, every single time. Hey, let's talk about Revelation. Let's talk about Revelation. Um, Revelation's hard, right? Because there's all sorts of prophecy. Prophecies is spoken and literally all throughout the Bible. Here's what is important about prophecy, because Jesus speaks it right here. Prophecy was done for our benefit. Right? It wasn't to confuse us, but it was spoken so as we see it occur, it helps provide the confidence. Where Jesus spoke it, or, or, or a prophet in the Old Testament spoke it. And holy cow, a few years, or hundreds of years, or thousands of years later, it occurs. Just like it was said. Just like it was spoken. Or we can see all those things. We, we can read in Isaiah, where Isaiah prophesies about the death of Christ. And you match that up with what actually occurs, and it's like, wow. How in the world? That's not in the Bible to spook us out. It's the Bible to give us comfort. Where Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to surprise you guys, but these are the things that will happen. Take comfort 
I'm allowing, I'm telling you what some of the things that will occur. So as they happen, as they occur, you understand that I'm still in control. Right? This point, Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, the end for me here on earth is, is getting close. He tells them that before it happens. So when it does happen, after they have some time to reflect on it, as the Holy Spirit comes within them and causes them to remember. You guys think about this. They travel with Jesus for like three and a half years, like face to face. Like we know, you can read that very end of the Gospel of John. We, John, trans, very transparent, says, listen, this is only a little bit of what happened. <laughs> they, they, they would have so much information that, it would, that we couldn't even log it all. And he says, listen, all that stuff, I'm going to bring back to your remembrance. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you remember this for, for your own benefit. I find it kind of neat how, as the end of this, verse 30, he's, he's saying, listen, I'm not going to talk much longer with you for... The ruler of this world is coming. That ruler of this world is Satan. At this time, Judas Iscariot's already worked out a deal with the Jewish leaders. He's already received the money. All, that, all of it's set up in place. He says, the ruler of the world is coming, but he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise up. Let us go from here. I want us to circle back for, for just a moment to the verse, first verse that we read. That's verse 15 of, of John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We're going to hop through a few verses here. But I want us to sincerely ask that question this morning. Do I really love Jesus? I mean, do I really love Jesus? Listen, we can say that statement. We can make that, post that question in church. And our first reaction says, of course, I love Jesus. But I want you to sincerely think this through. Because as I said, the very first word in that statement is huge. If. Because if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. When you think through this for a moment, does your life show that you love Jesus? Does your life show that you love Jesus? Do your actions prove your love? Do the things that you do prove what you claim? Are you the choices that you make based on your love for Jesus? Do the choices you make, are they based on the love you have for Jesus? And maybe one of the most telling 
would those around us testify or agree or say or speak up about our love for Jesus? Love's an interesting word. In our culture today, when we use the word love, we automatically go to emotion. Like a middle school romance. Right? Well, we, we think about the cute little boy, the cute girl in the class in the row in front of us. Tomorrow, you guys will all pick out a new middle school friend. That's the love that we automatically go to. We, we think of our own relationships. I love you. We think of Valentine's Day love, don't we? We think of an emotion. While there are aspects of love that are emotional, love in and of itself is not an emotion. Not the love that Jesus is requesting and talking about. It's a choice. Sometimes we can get wrapped in the emotion of it all. We can get wrapped up in the emotion of, of church and of worship. Like, like we feel compelled that we have to come and get all filled and pumped and excited for a week. Like we need that. We need that emotional charge from church. Let's look at a quick example of someone who was very emotional. In uh, Mark. Mark chapter 12. Maybe I'm messing up here. Bear with me for a second. Mark 14. Mark 14, verse 26. Um, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after, I raised, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Okay, familiar passage, right? We all know that Peter was full of emotion, right? Jesus says, listen, guys, some, you're going to deny me. And Peter, like, you're all going to fall. Peter, I will not. We see, although it's a sincere idea of emotion, we see it sincere, like he won't. Uh, when you go over later on in that chapter, Verse 43 says, this is when they're in the, Jesus is about to be arrested there. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came and 
went up to him, and at once he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That's Peter. That's Peter. The one who, who loves him and, and emotionally in that moment earlier said, I will not, I, I, will, I will die if I have to. I will not. And even to the point where they come and, and they arrest Jesus, his first emotional reaction is to draw his sword and he cuts the ear off. But what happens? What happens when Jesus is ultimately arrested and tried? What Jesus told Peter would happen, happens. He denies him three times. You see, when we base our relationship with Christ, when we base our walk with him off of emotions, it will fail. It will be a crash and burn. My heart breaks for so many people to where they have to use it. They have to use church in an emotional worship experience to get a fix that will last for a few days. By the middle of the week, they feel drained. Because they're not relying on Christ. They're not relying on a relationship with him. They're relying on an experience. And church won't save you. I think we become very good at our exteriors. As I've often said, and with great sincerity, I, I believe and I hope and I pray that as we continue to develop Redemption Hill, and we continue to grow, that Redemption Hill is a church that's just completely transparent, that's real, that we're real people with real issues, that we're family, we love each other, we embrace each other, and we help each other through good times and bad times. That we don't put on an act for those around us to make everybody think our life is perfect when the reality is not. And to make you feel comfortable if you're going through a tough time, more than likely the person next to you is too. Just the way it is. It's just the way life is. But we can fake a lot out. Um, if you go back in the Old Testament in the Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, listen to this. Malachi chapter 1, verses um, 6. I'm going to read several verses here. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despise my name, But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table has been despised. 
when you offer blind animals in sacrifice? Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from the hand will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there will be one among you who would shut the doors that you might, be, might not kindle fire on a, my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Those are intense words, aren't they? See, what's going on there in the temple is they have this deal. They're, they're, they're sacrificing. The Old Testament had very clear rules on what should be acceptable as a sacrifice. And they'd gone away from it. Rather than giving their best, they began to sacrifice the weak animals, the ones that wouldn't survive, the blind, the ones that had these things that were wrong with them. They were doing the sacrifice, yes. But it was all in vain. The priests were the ones who were covering this up. In our own walk with him, we need to understand this. We may be able to fake out our friends. We may be able to even fake out our family. And I'm pretty certain there are times when we can fake ourselves out. But God knows our heart. He knows our heart. So when you ask the question, if you love me, if you love me, you obey my commandments. What are his commandments? Quickly. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. If you can turn there with me. First book in the New Testament, Matthew 22, verse 35. 22, verse 35 through 40. You may, you may want to underline this. Um, you may you want to put in, the, in your Bibles there or back in Matthew or Mark, or, sorry, John chapter 14, verse 15. Sending you back here, but, but Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. This is asking Jesus to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law of the prophets. Jesus is telling his disciples, John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do we really love him? How often 
Do we spend time talking to him? By talking, I mean in prayer. How often do we spend time listening to him? You may think, Chad, what are you talking about? How can we listen to him? We listen to him through his word, through his Bible. How often do we read this? How often do we come together and gather in his house? His house here happens to be a middle school. Church isn't about getting perfect attendance. Last week I talked, we were created for relationships. Acts 2.42 goes on and talks about the believers, how they gather together to, to follow the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread. Like, we need each other, guys. I, I can't expound upon this enough. Faith family, we need each other. Not that we're going to save each other. But Christ works in us and through us. The Holy Spirit, the helper, works in us and through us. We're the hands and the feet of Jesus here on this earth. We need each other. There are times where you need to come here. You need to hear the worship music. And you need to have your heart stirred. There are times when you need to come here and listen to the teaching of God's word. And be challenged. Be corrected. And there are times that you need to be there for the one next to you who needs all the same things. We all benefit from church. That's why in Hebrews 10.25, Paul saying, Forsake not the assembly of the believers. You need to be together. One of the things we don't always like to talk about is, yes, we need to read his word. We need to pray to him. We need to be around each other. But our possessions, we like to guard those, our things. Um, I, I read moments ago from Malachi, the beginning there. If you go to Malachi um, chapter 3, verse 8 says this, um, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? in your tithes and contributions. Some of your versions may say offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Listen, I'm not going to get here in front of you and say, listen, you tithe your 10%, and God's going to return that tenfold. You put $10 in there, you'll have $100 magically show up in your account tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. But when we talk about love, when I say the, ask the question, do I truly love God? Then what are we offering him? Are we offering God our leftovers? I mean, in our walk with him, 
we're saying, we're telling the people around us, I love God. I, I mean, I so love God. Amen, Jesus, hallelujah. You may even in your radio play Christian music, Way FM, 88.1. Chris Tomlin, posters in your bedrooms. But what are we truly offering him? Are we more concerned with watching television than we are with reading his word? I'm not saying for every 30 minutes of TV you need to spend equal time in the Bible. But if we spend a night doing all that stuff and it's, it's late and we're tired and we give God five minutes before we go to sleep, is that us truly telling God, man, I love you, God. Here's five minutes. Is our prayer life dependent upon crisis in our life? Meaning this, is it fairly quiet between me and God until tragedy or chaos hits and then all of a sudden I'm on my knees praying to him, asking for help? Am I at church because someone dragged me to go to church? Or it's my monthly obligation? Is my tithe determined upon how much money I have in my account at the end of the month versus the beginning of the month? I mean, am I willing to go out and spend $200 on something on Saturday night that won't be around six months later and then throw a $20 bill on the offering plate that morning to justify it? And when I say this, hear my heart when I, uh, when I talk about tithing. Like, I don't care if you give the redemption hill or not. Like, I have full trust and faith that God will provide. So as I'm sitting here before you touching on this thing, it's not that I, I, I say this for us to prosper. Listen, if you don't want to send your tithe to redemption hill, that's fine. There's all sorts of worthy causes to send it to. All I'm saying is this. Don't give God your leftovers. Don't walk around saying that you love God, but that's the best you're going to give him. See, that first verse is critical. That first word, it says, if you love me, not when you love me. If you love me. If you love me, there'll be obedience. You're going to follow me. And that obedience causes the trust to turn into confidence. This isn't about legalism. This is not about us having to read a certain amount of Bible every day. And it's not about creating duties in life. It's not a checklist. It's about a relationship. And like any relationship, If you pour nothing into it, we should expect nothing out of it. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle. 
He's a man who left heaven to come to earth. He's a man that while we were still messed up, while we were still screwed up, while we were still involved in sin, was nailed to a cross and died for you and I. Who freely and willingly gave his life for us to fill that gap between us sinners and God holy. But Jesus did not die on a cross so we can continue in sin. He died on a cross to bridge the gap. So the question this morning is simple. In theory, but difficult to live. Do you love Jesus? Let's pray.